In brightest day, in blackest night, all other podcasts tremble in fright. Losers cower before the power. Oranges lust and blues you can trust. Indigos feel and white ones heal. Yellow scare and green ones dare. That sapphire love and black hands glove will rock your foundation without hesitation. Chad and Mars face evil's might. Respect their power for they'll make you see the light. Hi everybody, I'm Chad Bokelman. I'm Mark Marble. And this is the Lantern Cast. Episode 215. Uh, February books. Yes. That's right. Seems like we've been away forever when it comes to books, but we're back! Yeah. Uh, hopefully that, uh, Ron Mars interview tied you guys, uh, tided you guys over. <laughs> we thought it was worth it. Yeah, it was. <laughs> For sure. Um, quick addendum, if you guys, uh, if I sound any different at all, I am re-recording this, uh, I've got a little bit of a headache, uh, so, uh, just... You know, in terms of comfort and, and stuff like that, so I don't <laughs> make it worse. We're recording this via my phone right now, so or at least I'm recording on you know my end. My mic is using the phone, the uh, app on uh, on my iPhone. But Mark says I don't sound that different at all. So um, you know, if it's bad, blame him. <laughs> nice. <laughs> or you sound me. you sound a tad different now. You sound a little bit. The volume doesn't seem quite as you know fresh Robust. and crispy as as normal but when you speak up i think it's fine but it's not the quality it's you know it's not a it's not a crappy quality by any stretch of the imagination so well i'll speak up when it's time for my uh my review but when you're you know, when you're I, awake I, yeah but it's, I've, I've got i've got time to fall asleep between now and the time i review a comic <laughs> yes because because chad chad chose the good books this month and left, left me all the crap so i had to fight just to get one one decent book out of the three <laughs> All right, well, you're taking Green Lantern and Green Lantern Corps up first, so uh, go ahead, man. No, I'm only kidding. Uh, Green Lantern 39, which is our second-to-last issue before Convergence and whatever changes that may bring about. So, we begin in Sector 3276. We see a cute little scene between a father and his daughter. It's kind of funny because they have like almost like a half an in, like a, a third of an indigo lantern symbol on their head. I guess it's part of like their birthmarks as their race. So the guardians are talking about, you know, it's a fundamental law of existence. Every action gives birth to reaction. And basically, what we see in this scene is that this little girl is like chasing like this butterfly little little item. Something falls down to the surface of the planet. It turns everything, or begins turning everything, to stone. And this is such a dramatic and traumatic event that, much like the Death Star exploding with the tremor in the Force that Obi-Wan felt, that all throughout the universe, that this planet turning to stone and its ramifications are felt. So you have Constantine in New York feeling it. You have Raven from the Titans feeling it. And you have Shazam even feeling it. So, uh, we 
cut to Mogo, where the new Guardians, the Templar Guardians, have been observing all this. And upon seeing all this, they decide now it's time to send for the leader of the, Grand, uh, the Green Lantern Corps. Send for Hal Jordan. And we actually get one of the a nice little splash page, which is actually one of Billy Tan's best drawings of Hal, I think. When Hal basically is, he gets the message from on his ring, but he's a little busy right now because he's best. He's basically in the midst of trying to rescue a bunch of, what are they? They're like pirates. They're like mine. You know, they're they're like mining pirates or something, aren't they, Chad? Something like that. Uh, yeah, I guess. Uh, they're, they're trying yeah. to steal. They're trying to steal. It's almost like an, unregi- an unregistered mining operation, I guess. And Hal Hal demands that they surrender, uh, or then they all basically to, to put all the basically everybody you know come to the bridge so we could track and lock onto their all their life signals e- more easily and get them out. Of course, they don't you know the the aliens don't do that. So just as the ship is. Crack gets cracked open because it's being bombarded by in an asteroid field. Hal creates energy bubbles to save them all, and then the pretty cool scene of Hal flying through space, and how every single uh, energy bubble that their paths are in, basically are adjusted individually to uh, keep them from being smashed by by asteroids. Hal, you know, Hal once they get out of the asteroid field, he pull you know, all the criminals or the wood. Pseudo criminals, soon to be <laughs> tried as criminals, are all put into one big uh, energy bubble, and you know Hal's pretty much telling, you know, laying down the law. When we find out that Hal's and the pirates are not alone anymore, that the law of that of that part of the sect, at least from that sector, part of the law has come, and Hal thinks that you know that they're for their that the uh, law is there basically because of these mineral poachers that they're looking for them. Even though, of course, they keep claiming they're a legal outfit and everything, but we find out that the that the law is really there because of the Green Lantern Corps and more and because of Hal's presence. And we have a very nice exchange between Hal and the and the the head of these lawmen, Chief Constable Nain, who basically says, you know, I already know your name, Leader Jordan. You haven't exactly kept a low profile. You know, one cop to another. I appreciate what you did here, but there's a stink on your department. I don't want the whiff of it rubbing off on me and mine. Meaning, meaning well and doing well isn't the same. Wash up, clean, house, Hal Jordan. You know, like the core needs to get right with the universe, which is kind of, I think, setting the stage for at least my, my theory what's going to be happening in issue 40 and beyond. Uh, we cut, we go to Mogo, where we have uh, our favorite Muck Muck. Muck Muck and Vath pretty much get into this ridiculous argument about who is least popular in their own sector. Uh, you know, Kilowog, Kilowog kind of breaks it up at the command center. Kilowog is kind of surprised to see Hal there, and Hal just says, "Well, you know, the Guardians. I have a meeting with them. They told me to, you know, kind of catch up on recent activity." And Hal pretty much gets a, if he didn't know before, he gets a crash course now on exactly how crappy things are in the universe. And another telling part of this issue is. When pretty much Kilowog says, you know, you, you asked me, we were cooked the second the old Guardians got killed. And Hal goes, what, you want those lunatics back? And he goes, listen, I want I want them in cells. I wanted them, you know, to stand trial and, and, and pay for what they did. Show the universe, you know, the system works, even when it comes to our own. Especially then. You know what I mean? And, before, and, and as Kilowog finishes his thought, Hal's already gone. 
He shows up before the Templar Guardians. Few little ex- cute exchanges where again Hal's trying to using like Earth humor or, and just humor in general, like completely goes over the Guardians' Guardians' heads. But essentially, the the Guardians, surprisingly, to, at least to Hal and maybe a little to us, tell Hal that we th- that they think that he's done an admirable job. All in all, that he did exactly what they told him to do, even though his style of leadership is a little offbeat to say the least. That you know his role, his job that they tasked him with was to ensure the survival of the Green Lantern Corps and safeguard the universe in their absence. And Hal did it. So. As far as they're concerned, it was it was a success. But they do acknowledge that the un, that the universe has a com, complete distrust and fear now with the of the Green Lantern Corps, and that's kind of, and that's something that that has to be dealt with. And the Guardians play you know kind of play up to how because they want him to help, and they even <laughs> even playing up to his ego, saying you know we've heard you called the the greatest Green Lantern of them all, and this may very well be true. It's like, will you help us reclaim the core's good name? And then you see how, you know, how putting, you know, in the basically the, the locker room, I guess, of the at the barracks of the of the core, he's you know taking off his ring temporarily, looking at his jacket, and he goes, you know, the further I get from the cockpit, the more I realize there's only t- ever two choices: uh, to go down in flames or do something crazy. So next issue is take a guess which one. <laughs> So that ends Green Lantern 39. I've got two things to say. Billy Tan, that is not how a power battery looks. Well, yes, we know this. And uh, another thing, the I'm trying to, because I'm using my tablet right now, so I'm trying to, i got to swipe back to the, the page. Um, Chief Constable Nain, it's a trap! <laughs> yes, he does. That is something when I reread it the other night. I was, like, I was trying to fit, pl- place exactly what he looked like, and first I thought... It, just like like a like a fish kind of thing, and then I looked at it the close up. It's like, yeah, he he looks like Admiral Akbar. <laughs> Maybe he's a relative, for sure. But to be um, to be fair to be fair for for Billy Tan or to Billy Tan, there's actually two pick at least two pages in this issue that are probably some of his best work, including that you know, that splash page where, where it says Ripple Effect, the issue the issue title, and when he when. When Hal first puts them in their individual energy bubbles to rescue them, and, and Ring switched to automatic mon- monitoring, that's at least facially probably about as good as Hal's looked so far during the Tan tenure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean it was it was a pretty good issue. Um, it's just uh, you know it's just more uh, kind of fill-in, I guess. I kind of feel like all these, you know, of, of course all these are, are waiting for, for the inevitable issue 40 to, to really get going. But, you know, I guess for what it is, it was it was pretty good. Um, I don't really have a whole lot to say. I do have to say, however, the impact of these uh, this little asteroid being felt throughout the universe, it's important to note who is feeling it. Constantine, Raven, and Shazam. So it's ma- somehow magic related. Yes, it's magic based. That's that's the point I wanted to, to make sure we were getting out there is that it's even though it's being felt, it's being felt specifically by magic users. Now, is it the is is it being felt by magic users for? It's it's one of two reasons. One, it's magic based, or two, 
magic users are more in tune with the universe or whatever and kind of, you know, I know you made the joke earlier, but can quote unquote sense a disturbance in the force. You know what I mean? Yes. So I wonder, you know, is, is it is it magic based or is it just magic users are more sensitive? Which which of the two? That is true. That is yet that has yet to be determined. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say is the bit of comedy. Uh, I don't know if it was intentional. This freaking butterfly <laughs> with the big ass bug eyes <laughs> was funny to me when I first read this issue. Yeah, almost, almost yeah, almost does has a Muppet kind of look to it. <laughs> yeah, it was almost comical. I was like, what the hell? <laughs> this butterfly's eyes are like <laughs> bigger than its body. <laughs> uh, so what do you now? I I've you know you and I have kind of alluded well we've kind of had pseudo discussions about what I think is going on in this issue or what they're what's going to be happening, but you haven't but you hadn't read the issue up until until now, yeah. Uh, so what do you think? What do you think is going on? I want to see if you think what I think is going on. If you know what I know that would you know? <laughs> uh, this uh, I don't know the the fact that it's magic and the fact that it's Green Lantern makes me wonder if this. Uh, this is somehow tied to the star heart of our universe. Um, another possibility is that this is a tie-in to the upcoming Convergence event. And uh, HAL, too. Don't forget the HAL aspect of it, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and the HAL, the, the HAL aspect... Um, I don't know. What did, the, what did they ask of HAL? They, we, I mean, specifically. We don't know, and that's the yeah. whole point. But I... Yeah. But I think I think this is what this is what I think, and I think it's kind of late. Even in the preview, and as we were as we're recording this, we're recording this the Tuesday night before Green Lantern 40 will come out. So Green we have not read Green Lantern 40 yet, though the, you know the few preview pages have been online, and I have looked at the preview pages, and nothing I've seen in the preview changes my vibe or my prediction about what's happening. What I think is happening or what's going to happen is, which plays into that cover we've seen of how with Krona's gauntlet on and going ro- and quote unquote going rogue that you go back and you see and you there are, it's, I don't necessarily know if it's that subtle I think in this issue I think they it's kind of I think laid out from from you know the the constable talking about this, you know, there's a there's a st- there's a stink in your out on your outfit, and you need you know you need to clean it up. Uh, Kilowatt talking about how he wished the guardians had the old guardians had were still were basically still there just so they could have been punished to show everybody that you know we're, we're not afraid to punish our own. And my take is what the even if we don't see, we may not see this happen on page. This may be, and I and I almost am willing to think that we're not going to see it on page because that kind of leaves it up in the air to the reader what's going on until they finally tell you down the road. I think the Guardians are going to ask Hal Jordan to be the fall guy. That they're going to they want that they're going to want him to look like he went rogue, that he did something wrong so the core can punish him, cast him out. So the universe will see that the core is and the Guardians are not afraid to punish their own including their own leader. They're not that they're not afraid to police themselves if necessary including their no one is above their law, including their leader. And Hal yeah. is going to openly do that for the good of the core and because the Guardians ask him that. The preview indicates, you know, when, because it's leading to the, the Kilowog-Hal confrontation, that Kilowog is kind of in on it too. 
because maybe Kilowog had to be in on it. I don't know if many, many other people at all will be in on it, just because obviously the, the more people that know a secret, the less likely it is to be kept. So I think what's going to happen is Hal's somehow going to be, in the eyes of the majority of the core, he's going to be, uh, he's going to be punished or cast out. He may not even, to the, to the core at large, he may not even have a ring anymore, which is, might be why he's stealing the gauntlet. We know he's still going to have a ring because he's going to end up on Earth, where, which is out of uh, Green Lantern, not a Green Lantern sector anymore anyway. It's out of their jurisdiction. So basically, he's going to be able to use his ring on Earth, and no one else is really going to care or know. But Hal's pretty much going to be off the radar screen for the core and for everybody else. Because technically speaking, they wouldn't even be if they wouldn't even be officially allowed to go after him if they knew he was on Earth, because that's not their sector anymore. So I think that's what's going to happen. He's going to go to Earth. He's going to do his own thing, and then when the time comes, that's when the Guardians and will make the reveal that Hal's more or less been doing, playing this role for them. So that's what I think is going on. Okay. I mean, yeah, I guess. I, I mean, I'm not. I'm not saying that I, I disagree, but you know, I, I definitely see what you're talking about, especially with the conversation with Gillawog. And uh, you know, there's something crazy in him putting his ring in his. Uh, in his uh, locker or something, I guess. Yeah, I just, I mean, we know from the last issue of Justice League that Hal's going to be on Earth and he's got a ring. So I don't think he's not going to have a ring. I just think he may, it may not, no one else may think he has a ring, which is why he steals the gauntlet. They're probably going to, maybe the whole, the whole plan is going to be that the ring was stripped from him, but, you know, he wasn't, you know, but that wasn't, but, you know, he still wanted some, he still wanted enough power, still wasn't willing to give up the power, so he stole Chrono's gauntlet so he could still have whatever. But I think that's what's going to I think that's what's going to happen. That he's going to be the that he is going to be the, he's going to agree to or has agreed already to be the fall guy for the Guardians. That so that whole conversation t- took place off panel and I don't necessarily know if we're even going to see it in issue 40. We might see it. It all depends how they want to play it. It all depends, you know, how Venditti and everybody wants to approach it, whether they want us to know, be in on the fact that Hal really isn't bad, you know, really hasn't turned rogue, or whether they just want it, or whether it's better from a storytelling point of view to just leave it up in the air, and then eventually we find out. But I think one way or the other, the core is going to be in the dark, and that's the important thing. The universe will see that the core has, you know, cast out Hal Jordan because of things that he has done or he has been judged to have done, and that the core... To try to raise their image and their, or their and their uh, their cred in the in the universe at this point. So that's what I think. I, I guess we'll see. Yep, guess we will. All right, Green Lantern Core thirty nine. Green Lantern Core thirty nine. So we pick up where we left off in Space Sector two five two five on Xerox, which is about Fesca's home planet. Uh, continuing the conversation with Fesca. And her son Zepp, when he was talking about how you know, it's you know it's really the monsters that you have we have to fear not you know and not her interpretation of that being you know the bad people on the planet. Uh, it's that as you know Zepp continues to explain this uh, this this hawk looking monster cra- you know crashes through the through the side of the apartment building. Starts, so they. They start being attacked by these monsters, the Lanterns and uh, Fesca's family. Uh, Jeruk, which this is a pretty good issue for Jeruk because he's pretty protective, which maybe hints at a relationship between him and Fesca down the road. But he's very protective of Fesca and Fesca's family. 
one of the monsters uh, attacks, basically, unfortunately, breaks through the wall and attacks and kills Feska's mother. The, the la- you know, the lanterns are able to somewhat repel the attack along with the monsters pulling back on their own, but they kidnap Marrow, which, of course, also is, continues the drumbeat towards building, towards things we've, we know, according to uh, Future's End, will be coming down the road. But Marrow disappearing and basically, whether it actually happens or not in this timeline... Uh, but Marrow, you know, being t- kidnapped and eventually being, you know, turned against the core, they open that possibility. So they try to they try to track Ma- Marrow down. They can't find him. We cut the issue cuts to Space Sector 2814 above the you know the moon above Angara, Ab- Abin Sur's planet. We see Van Von Dagel and and nice little bug bug esque. Uh, disguise among others, so he sees you know the, this really dungy sla- slave or enslaved population slave world, and at this moment that Daggle finds his partner, and he who we don't get a full glimpse on yet, but you know he goes partner, I started to lose hope you were still alive. Buck and Xarox, uh, nice little scene between. Feska and her son, as she tries to explain, you know, basically that his grandmother's dead, and Jeruk is, you know, about Jeruk, who has been pretty much, you know, just warrior, you know, all warrior and all business for the most of, the, if not all the time we've seen him so far, most of the time, you know, he's really shows emotion in this in this issue, and in, and he he's really choked up, and he goes, you know, with Feska, it's like Jeruk is. Jeruk is so so sorry about her loss. The lanterns, pretty the lanterns, uh, at this point try to are determined to find out, you know, what's going on underground to find out what you know. Going back to last issue, what this, what the whole darkness falls thing that everybody seems to be, you know, brainwashed into saying and and believing. So the lanterns pretty much find themselves surrounded by you know, everybody at this almost seemingly seemingly anyway almost everybody on the planet wa- wanting them wanting them dead. Chanting darkness falls. All of Xerox have turned against you, lanterns, all except that boy. But the shadows will claim him as well. You know, John Stewart pretty much just just drills whole, drills a path to the ground so they can go into you know below the surface and, in, and into the planet's. Go down close to the planet's core, certainly below the surface, to kind of find out what's going on, and you know, the basically the root of all of the evil on this planet. Back on the moon above Angara, we get a view of Daggle's partner, a seal, and then we get a very interesting recap and tie-in to find out that back to the tiger story with Abin Sur, that the little girl that Abin Sur rescued from his malt along so besides him being kind of like poisoned by the visions of blackest night that you know Abinsur rescued this little girl and he took her back to Angara and he thought he saved her life but of course just like the visions of blackest night essentially drove him and maybe haunted him and took him in a different direction this girl kind of you know was she was kind of lost too in a way she kind of had a as you know, as Azil describes it, you know, the girl bore a disease deep inside her, one that festered, grew, ready, you know, ready to spread. And the girl, you know, moved to this moon. By the time, you know, Azil had found her, you know, she'd be, 
she had built this base, you know, but for what she called the Shadow Empire, which we've already, you know, which was the, which was the next threat we were kind of like warned about when the Durlan thing ended, that the Shadow Empire was going to be, going to be coming up. Uh, we also get the indication, this also gets tied back into the Empire Tears in the beginning too, because a seal mentions how the Guardians themselves deal with the Empires of Tears, and they thought they were all destroyed before. You know, and, and the servants that, that weren't killed were imprisoned on Yuz Malt, and that, of course, led to Abin Sur landing there. And so we get that cra- we get that crash course on what has happened before, and hinting at what's co- what's to come. Van Dagel has a sealed Green Lantern ring, you know, that he's he found it on Gara, so he's gonna he was gonna give it to her, and she points out, you know, you know, that she's been help, you know, she's done so many horrible things, you know, basically going. By being undercover, she's had to, by being a slave master and all, and working her way up, essentially, to slave master being undercover. She's done a lot of horrible things. And basically, she's been helping them build. And he asks, you know, what what are they building? And she goes, seeds, seeds to spread the darkness. And then we, she kind of takes them, or takes Daggle to a, a precipice. And clearly, the, she shows him what they've been building, but we can't really see it. It's like, and he, Daggle is like, gods know. He's like, we we have to warn the core. So back with John Stewart, at, you know, at, on Xerox, that while they're deeper and deeper under the surface, they get attacked again by the monsters. You know, you know, Jeruk really, you know, freaks out, trying to protect Feska and and her, and her son. Jeruk even apologizes for killing them, and John Stewart makes it perfectly clear he doesn't really care about them. You know. So they keep going deeper and deeper to find out what's going on, and then they get to the we get to the very end, and we find out that there is a bomb, there is a huge bomb basically tied to the center core of Xerox, which brings us back to John's favorite moment in time, the destruction of Zanshi, and there's even an a, an out and out you know tie-in saying, "You've seen this type of bo- bomb before. You know what it will do. Tell me, Lantern, are you ready to fail a world for a second time?" And that ends the Green Lantern Core 39. What do you think that uh, Von Dagel found? I'm not sure. I really don't know. Because I... I, I think I know. What, what do you think it is? Okay, look at the panel where it says Seeds. Seeds to spread the darkness. Okay. Now look at the panel where... Um, uh, John says, time for some answers. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, okay. I think that uh, they're looking at a similar bomb. I think these bombs are placed throughout the universe. That's true. That actually makes sense. Yeah. Uh, just which, because those cliffs look exactly the same. Yeah, which makes sense because at first – in fact, when I first when I first read the issue, first I, it confused me because I almost, I almost thought they were on the same planet, but obviously they can't be. Mm-hmm. But that would make sense. Yeah, it probably – that probably does make sense. It's probably uh, – that they got these world bombs scattered throughout the, the galaxy. Otherwise, that's the only thing interesting I find about this issue. I like Fe- um, I like Feska. I like Feska and her family. I think that I for some reason I don't know why I can't honestly tell you why I feel drawn to her and her son. I know we're supposed to, so it'd be you know so it's not shocking that I think that we are or certainly I am, and that's the goal. But. And I like Jeruk. I think I think obviously they're setting up that Jeruk has strong feelings for for Feska. The fact that 
almost everything he does, you know, in this issue, whether it's out of character, being affectionate, or the fact of what causes him to lash out the most is when she and or part of her family is in danger. Yeah. So, yeah, the Marrow thing, yeah, you know, the, again, they really are beating the drums for Future's End so much in these issues, in these issues that it it. So, I liked it. I mean, I I liked the last issue of Core too. Uh, I don't know. I guess maybe again, if 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 what you say in your theory certainly is sound, that if it's correct about basically, there's a lot of these things all throughout the universe, these world bombs, and then then at least it makes it a little more palatable that they're kind of revisiting the whole Zanshi thing because it's not because it's not like a a direct one-on-one tie-in, you know, one planet versus one planet. At least it's you know, there's a there's a there's a method to the madness besides just dragging John through the Zanshi mud again. Yeah, the only other thing I I both like and don't like is this uh, flashback to Zan to Yasmalt and the the basically the tiger storyline yeah. with the. I thought that chick was supposed to be Indigo One. No, they they explained that away. Yeah, that was a that was a theory. That was a very popular theory before we found out Indigo One's origin. Remember Indigo One? She was just a criminal that ended up killing uh, Abinsur's daughter. Yeah, but where did Indigo One herself come from? I'm trying to remember if they told us where Indigo One. I don't think they ever did. No, but they, but they didn't. Yeah, but they didn't tie. They didn't tie that into. Uh, but that was that was the common theory at the time that that Indigo One, especially with with the with the tie-in, even without the full-blown origin, we knew Abinsur had something to do with with the Indigo tribe. Just because he's in the, their oath, we knew it. We knew it for a while. That that was a popular theory, but it, but they never, but there wasn't anything on the page to ever back up that you know she was she was that kid. But I agree with you. It's, I, it certainly once again it follows the way this book has gone during its tenure, which is that they do go back and they, even if the stories aren't always what you know things that we have liked all that much, but they they bring back older characters, they bring back older concepts, they do a good good job referencing or having an homage here and there to things that have happened in the Green Lantern history before, even if it's distant history, not just recent. So I think it's uh, – so I, I like the fact that they did it. I don't necessarily like the fact that, you know, that essentially she's, you know, that, that this kid was, you know, more or less lost – or she was a lost cause essentially the minute she they crashed on Yasmald. Just like just like the way they even play up Abin Sur, that Abin Sur more or less was the same way that he just he kind of was infected by from, from by Yasmald in one level and she was infected by another. Um, do you think the uh, this chick uh, that Daggle's gone after? Uh, what was her name? Uh, Elise. Oh yeah, uh, Seal. Excuse me. Yeah. Uh, do you think that she's um, still, you know, a Green Lantern underneath it all, or do you think she's too far gone? I'd like to think she's not too far gone, but but I, I'm not sure yet. I think the the verdict is the verdict is still out. You can you could obviously everything on the page would indicate that she's not. But that could just be a ruse to find out you know where we are in, in issue 40 or something, when she, she kind of like screws them over. So you don't know. I don't know. I, I'm I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt that you know she's 
It's like one of those things that we you see a lot in books or in movies when somebody gets embedded and they're so far undercover and they have to stay undercover that eventually it becomes a fine line. Even you know sometimes you just play, the, you have to play the role because of your your assignment, but then eventually it kind of you get lost and what's your that becomes almost you or you, to you becomes so second nature that it's debatable whether you know that's not you anymore. That it may have started as a cover, but now that's who you really are. But you I have guess to know when to hold them and know when to hold them. <laughs> Actually, I'm thinking. I, did you ever see Smoke and Aces? Uh, maybe. Yeah, that's what this reminds me of because you had the the the, the FBI. I think it was the FBI. They had this guy inside the mob, and he was uh, they placed him there, and to inf- a long long story short, he ended up being in there so long, and they he almost was killed by the, you know, by the, F, I think by the FBI himself, they thought he may have gone rogue, and they, and they tried to kill him, and he just ended up being, he ended up just becoming this huge, this huge crime boss, but yet, at, but at the end, you know, it, there was this question about whether he still was, how, was he still, par, partly, did he belong to them, or was he lost to the mob, and it, it was, it was, it was an interesting movie in my, on many levels, but that, that that was kind of the underpinnings of it that you find out that the mob boss everybody was trying to kill was actually was an FBI agent who just was so far in undercover that more or less that became that became his life. He couldn't go back to the FBI anymore because they thought he sold out. So so that that's what this kind of reminded me. That's kind of the, that same sort of thing. Whether Azil is that way or not, I guess we're going to find out. Right. Anything else? No, I don't think so. But it, it was a pretty. It, I think all of this, all this month as a whole, I think all the issues were pretty good. Hmm. Red Lanterns, maybe not so much. Red Lanterns, I don't. It's the concept. If you can can get over the concept of the issue, then maybe it, it, it's it's fine. But but I think for the most part, I think the issues are. They're not. They're not. They're not whimpering to the finish line. Let's put it that way. All right, New Guardians. New Guardians. All right, New Guardians number 39. We open with Kyle and Radus. Woohoo! Uh, and Alex shows up and, uh, you know, he's, you know, kisses her but uh, immediately recognizes something is wrong. She starts turning into Super Zombie for him, saying she's cold, it's dark, why'd you leave me alone and cold in the dark? You know, this is what, this is your fault, Kyle. This is what you, this is what you bring, rotten ruin. Everything you decide pulls you further in. Uh, he says, I can fix it, I can fix it, you can't, you can't, uh, you know, I exist to stop you. It turns into oblivion. Um, this whole issue, and I, I, I know I'm not trying to make things shorter for me, but this is basically, uh, I, I could give you the play-by-play, but this is essentially one big fight between oblivion and Kyle, and I'll give you kind of the, the, the macro breakdown of the other things involved here in a second. But this is a back and forth between Kyle and Oblivion. This is um, uh, Kyle saying, you know, thank you for showing, you know, thank you for telling me what you're planning and I'm going to fight you. I'm going to stop you. But Oblivion keeps overcoming him and making the point that, you know, I exist to stop you, essentially. Uh, He uh, Mark mentioned Future's End earlier. This is this is very Future's Endy. Oblivion is basically saying saying "I, I see what you become. And when what he's seeing that Kyle becomes is what's happened in Future's End. He's basically saying that, you know, you're uh, – let me see if I can find the, the exact line uh, that uh, Oblivion uh, says to Kyle. Um, again, I apologize. This is – I'm reading all this all on tablet, so I can't 
turn as fast as I want to. And plus, they do show future. They do show Kyle from Future's End. Oh, yeah, yeah, they, they they do, they do. Um, but uh, let me see. Uh, Let's see if I can find it where you're. No, I'm 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 almost there. Uh, okay, here we go. Uh, I I can see the pattern of you, Kyle Rayner, the past, the future, and I see the one thing you cannot change is yourself. And that's the problem. You're compelled to use this power, but you can't understand it. You'll reshape the evil into good and call this just, just as you were trying to change me. And perhaps this could be justified, but you won't stop until eventually you're opposed by those you once held dear. It shows Carol with the um, God killer's arm, armor uh, and they will fall by your hand. You will tell yourself this is how it had to be. You will dig your, you will dig deeper into your own righteousness until all that is has been made to your liking. And Kyle, you know, just cannot, you know, cannot accept that this is, this is what's going to happen. And basically, that's that's the breakdown of this. Uh, that's the breakdown of this whole issue. Is it's this big fight between Kyle and Oblivion? And you think that Oblivion is just this pure evil, and you know, in a lot of ways, he is. But he's uh, his, his he's one of those uh, villains that there is more beneath the level. I mean, this this is Kyle. This is Kyle's dark reflection in, in, in a way. There are ty- there, there's a moment here where you know uh, Oblivion admits that you know he's not necessarily Kyle, but you know there there is a lot of similar similarities there. Regardless, um, uh, some of the other macro stuff here uh, in, in in the issue. Um, the chick that uh, Carol and Kyle had uh, spoken to earlier, uh, she comes to Kyle's rescue at one point, you know, hitting, uh, hitting, a, a, trying to, to hit, uh, she hits Oblivion with a gun. Uh, Carol, you know, is, is involved in all this, but at one point, you know, Kyle tells them to get the, the heck out of there, and they do. Uh, at the very end of the issue, however, what happens is that uh, Kyle uh, is uh, overtaken for the most part. It looks like he is going to be overtaken by Oblivion. Uh, and right as Oblivion says, you know, is sucking basically looks like he's sucking the life out of Kyle. Uh, it says, you know, he says there's nothing and he says no. And you, you turn, he turns around and there's. Carol and the Guardians and um, this chick who's uh, who just left with Carol but is now wearing a uh, God Killer armor. Uh, there's uh, well, what's his name? Uh, Exeter, right? Yeah, Exeter. Uh, and there's Saint Walker, your buddy. Uh, no, there is hope. And next thirty-nine down and one to go. And the one thing I thought that was telling, and you, and this was kind of this happened right after the part that you read. When Oblivion's going through that, you know, the, talking about you know, they will fall by your hand, and Kyle just freaks out like that will not happen. And then Oblivion just kind of when he's smiling at him, parallax esque, and he goes, "It will. You believe it, or I wouldn't be here." Mm-hmm. Which which may very well factor into maybe the resolution of this whole thing about if that if get we get to the point where, Car- where Kyle no longer believes that he's going, you know, that him having this power potentially is bad that if he, he can reconcile inside himself that you know he's not that he really believes that he's not going to do this or he, he will not he really believes that that he will not make that that will not happen or he will not that's not in his nature for that to happen that maybe that will factor into uh that them overcoming oblivion 
I like Exeter showing back up again. That was one of the things I thought that was the coolest. Even more, mm-hmm. even cooler than St. Walker showing up, which was cool. But because I can, because I was thinking when I saw that page, it's like, wow, it's been. We haven't seen Exeter since that one since he, that one issue storyline he showed up in shortly after uh, Lights Out. And he's a cool character. He, he's he's I think he's one of the cooler characters that's been created during the, in, the entire new creative team's runs on when you look at all the books combined. I think Exeter is pretty cool. My favorite thing is still the colors. Uh, I like the the pastel palette that's basically being used uh, on these. It makes everything lighter. It makes the you know things are are less ink heavy. Um, when color when drastic colors are being used, like sharper colors as opposed to pastels, it really stands out. You know, like the black of of, uh, of Oblivion, the white of Kyle. You know that kind of a thing. Um, and especially with a big, you know, I hate to <laughs> hate to say it, but a big, you know, black and white fight between the two of them. When people like, you know, Carol uses their powers or something like that, it really st- makes things pop and stand out. Um, still can't stand Kyle's mask, but you know that's yep, that's kind of been there from the beginning with this outfit. I, yeah, that's more of a it's more of a design issue than an actual art issue. Um, I don't necessarily like some of the design elements of, uh, of uh, Oblivion, specifically the Venom Tongue thing. Yeah, and not uh, even just the tongue. He's just everything. I mean, it's the claws and everything. This, there's a lot of there's a lot of Venom esque in in this, even in this issue when when they're duking it out. I mean, the claws and the smile and the tongue. Yeah, the tongue is definitely Venom esque, but it's also a lot of the stuff is Parallax esque too. Mm-hmm. Too. So it's kind of like um, Venom and Parallax had a kid. Yeah, I do. I do like though the the especially. Like, I know I've already said that just the color palette. The blues aren't you know you know brilliant blue. They're pastel blue. Carol's violet isn't you know pink. It's like a pastel pink. Yeah, I just I like the pastels for some reason. I think it really makes for a great uh, some great art. I think it actually enhances and complements the, uh, the 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 pencils. And I let me see here. Am I is it the last page or is it towards the beginning? No, I guess it's towards the beginning. Uh, trying to find the, the title page where we can see who the uh, artist and, and inker and all that is. Yeah, well, the title page is more like sort into the issue. There it is. There it is. Um, no, and it still doesn't tell me who's who. Uh, it says it all ends here. So Justin Jordan, something Nevis is, is I'm guessing, the artist. Uh, the art doesn't look like it changes anywhere in particular, so I'm guessing that Deering is one of the inkers. But there's a lot of names after that, so I'm wondering if there's like two inkers, maybe. Could be. Um, because there's there is a lot of black in this issue. Um, but yeah, uh, the, I think that the uh, the the inks and the pencils complement themselves, as opposed to like the inks being too heavy. And then it's it's really just a good mashup, I think. I mean, forgetting design. I just think that the art looks great in terms of, you know, sometimes inks can overpower pencils uh, or, you know, uh, it could be a bad pairing in which that the uh, inker doesn't really understand what the artist is going for and some things get lost in translation. Same thing with colors. You know, the colors can not complement a a story very well. I think all of this, for the most part, outside of design works really well. I think you know the the inks complement the pencils and the colors complement the 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 finished product and I think it I think it works very well. 
So one more issue to go of, of New Guardians. To see if yeah, I wonder this, if it'll be back. Yeah, I don't. I don't think Kyle's going anywhere. Yeah, I don't think Kyle's going anywhere either. But uh, you know, is this particular title going to be back? And Kyle's White Lantern. Yeah, I think Kyle's still going to be a White Lantern too. Okay. Alrighty, uh, Red Lanterns. Oh God, this this is a, this is a strange issue. This is yeah, you, you you know it's a strange issue when the when the when the issue begins with a big splash page of a baby kicking the crap out of Guy Gardner. <laughs> and, and not a very attractive baby at that. So maybe they make it a, li- a little more palatable because of the fact that the, he really looks like a miserable. T- <laughs> he's an unhappy baby, but he's not a pretty baby. <laughs> Though he's got the full rage on effect there. So it's pretty funny because you know guys getting laid out by this kid. It's like he talks about you know he, he sums up everything that he's done in, you know and basically in this entire career and you know, fighting gods and. Bounty hunters and undead, and, and I've gone, I've gone toe to toe with the, with the damn Batman, but today makes it all seem easy. Today I got into a fight with a baby and I got my ass solidly kicked. <laughs> uh, so earlier now we get the we get the backstory that you know all all these townspeople, but uh, El Sobrante. <laughs> I, I, I guess. Yeah, El Sobrante as the population looks like it keeps getting marked marked down on the uh, on the sign as people die. That all all the all the people of El Sobrante seem hover to be hovering in the street, and guy you know walk you know, he walks over. He's kind of expecting to find more thoroughly burnt out bodies, like he in the, like the last issue that he dealt with, and he kind of he finds some bodies, but he finds surprisingly a baby right in the middle of it, and it's like uh and the baby at the time seems relatively relatively innocent, and guy actually seems happy to you know he seems. Maybe there's some fatherly instincted guy. Yeah, so you know he begins to he begins to scan the baby to try to find out what's going on. And as and as this happens, you know this this huge rage red monster you know, rage monster starts getting bigger and bigger behind him. And, and guy kind of even references you know that okay, so this is one of those st- something horrible standing behind me, isn't it? Kind of moments. And then he turns halfway. He's like, yeah, I called it. So this it's a really interesting a, a very demon like looking rage monster. It reminded me slightly of Predator but not I mean not Predator of uh Butcher but not but it clearly isn't supposed to be. So guys holding the baby in one arm and he's trying to deal with the rage monster he goes okay how about I put the kid down and then, then we take care of this and then of course the monster attacks while he's holding the kid. Guy creates a red energy bubble to get the kid out of there. So you know and he gets, then he keeps the kid away from him temporarily. The rage monster lays into Guy. Uh, guy's barely conscious, and the you know the the kid you know the the, he, the kid is coming over to him. He's still in the red energy bubble, but the kid basically seemingly helps bring down the red energy bubble. And Guy doesn't even know how, how that's possible. Then the rage monster attacks Guy again. Guy's fading out of it. You know, the baby's kind of crawling to him, and then he fades to black. We see guy. We see we see guy in a bed with some pills and some water and a with a straw and a glass. So you know, you know he's you know he got his ass kicked pretty bad because it looks like people 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 have been treating him for his wounds or at least for a headache. And you know, some of the townspeople like you know it's like you can't you can't help that kid. You know, you're, you're lucky you're alive. Pretty much whenever that monster attacks, everybody ends up everybody ends up dead. 
And then Guy kind of realizes, despite everything that's going on, it's like, I'm not angry. You know, why am I not angry? I mean, that's that's that shouldn't be happening. And then the lo- you know the locals kind of fill fill Guy in that that this kid, his you know, the baby's name is Danton. And all these things have been going on in town pretty much, once again, as a fallout from what Atrocitus did when he sent all that rage, all the rage down to Earth. And uh, Danton's children, I mean, excuse me, his parents, his parents were killed. So the, you know, the baby's kind of been full of rage ever since. Guy walks into basically his, uh, his nursery and we see the, the rage monster cradling the baby. And Guy confronts him and says, you know, I've been talking to the people around here. They think you're part of the kid, but I think, you know, but I ain't buying it. So at the moment, that rage, the rage um, monster be, almost acts like an entity because he goes into the baby. <laughs> and that kind of, and that kind of like feed, forwards us back to, the, to where we came in with the with Guy duking it out with the kid, you know, in the, and the kid's doing really, really well against Guy for a while. Punch. Yes. <laughs> I like the kids throwing the school bus at him, which is which is kind of like a double whammy. It's like I'm gonna crush this guy, and plus, I, I hate school. I haven't even gone yet. <laughs> Take this. So basically, going back to almost one of the oldest tricks in the book, if you will, uh, guy kind of uses a based on knowledge he got from the townspeople. He uses a a DVD. That Denton's parents made, showing his mom holding Denton, and the kid kind of sees this, you know, sees this video being played all on multiple screens, and that has a really calming effect on the kid because even though he's, even though he's, he misses his mom, and everything that there's more than rage in his heart, and the baby reaches up towards the screen. At that moment, the baby calms down. Guy pretty much helps absorb. He, he takes back a lot of the rage that was not just coming from the kid, but coming from the monster, and he focuses it, he focuses it up into space, purging, you know, purging the baby of the monster, and essentially, seemingly anyway, destroying the monster. And then, we, and then we have our new status quo for at least one more issue with 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 with, with guy on the road with backpack in baby. <laughs> I was like, all right then, little guy, just you and me, let's go get into some trouble. Hard traveling heroes <laughs> with baby. <laughs> this is ridiculous. <laughs> uh, artwork was really good, except yeah. the baby. I mean, the, like I said, the baby's not the baby's not a, the baby's not attractive even when he's not infected by rage. It's the sad reality. He's he's not a good. Maybe he's maybe that's supposed to be on purpose or not. But either way, he's not an attractive looking kid. He's really freaky when he's infected with rage. The rage mon- the rage monster itself is really awesome looking. Yeah, especially when he's in the nursery. Yes, when he's cradling the baby, that's awesome. That's an awesome page. Uh, artwork's still good all all the way around. Guy, I'm kind of getting used to guy with the sloppy hair look, even though I still wish his hair was, you know, more flat topish. I. It was a very let's put it this way: it was a very interesting choice for a story to tell. Uh, I. It was odd choosing the baby, so that's kind of hard to go beyond that. On some levels, I. So I probably would say, based, 
I think that's probably the main reason why this is probably my least favorite of the five books this month. But it's still not. It's still. In, I think it's still enjoyable and kind of falls into the way the book has been going for a while now with Guy. I don't think it's a dramatic shift, you know, tonally or anything else. But did you notice the ridiculous sign? Which one? It says "Happy Toddlers." <laughs> what letters are crossed out? <laughs> It says happy toddlers in the P P Y O D D L E R R S is crossed out. Just so, so it says hate. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> good grief. <laughs> yeah, guy with baby. Man, hi right, traveling daddy. <laughs> with the uh, world's the, angriest baby. <laughs> the colors are pretty cool. For sure. I don't know what it is about Guy's ring, but Guy's ring always looks pretty cool. That I guess true. the way it's shaded and the way the colors are used and shaded and stuff like that. It's going to be interesting to see where the status quo is when they end issue when they end issue forty, because because obviously there's still a lot of residual effect on Earth from everything. Atrocities did, so it's going to be hard to imagine he's going to be cleaning all that up in one issue. No. So, but what I also thought was completely interesting, and this hit me, and I should have mentioned it when we did core. You would almost think, and you would also think that Blees and Rancor would be showing up in, somewhere near Angara to find out what the hell's going on or why there's, even though he is kind of undercover, but still, if those rings start flaring up, why there's Green Lanterns in their sector? Right. Because we're about, we're certainly about due to see Blees and Rancor. I'm not sure if they're going to show up in issue 40 or not, but we really haven't see, seen hide nor hair of them since the end of the Atrocitus War. Or boob. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, any, anything else for Red Lanterns? No, we can roll on to the best and the brightest of the group. Which is I get to cover finally. Uh, yeah, we're gonna. Have to, I guess we're gonna have to alternate. We're gonna have to alternate Sinestro then, like every other month, because especially now that we're gonna be down seemingly to only three books. This is gonna be the book. This this will be the book we're gonna be fighting over constantly. <laughs> well, you you've been stealing Sinestro from me for months. So yes, yeah, so like, I've been claiming well, partially you... because I knew you, partially because I know you wanted New Guardians, so I know you always wanted that one. So I figured that was, this was the book that I wanted the most of. of but yes, I I have. <laughs> I have no problems with you taking it. That's why I fought to get Green Lantern. Because to me, that was, if I just got Red, Red and Core, that really would have been the that really would have been a big step down. At least Green Lantern, I like because of where I think they're going with it. Initially, for the you know, with Hal turning rogue, that part I like. So I, that's why I wanted that book at least. So, but yes, yeah, Sinestro is all, Sinestro is the is the best book consistently since its, since its inception at this point. <laughs> And my review probably won't do it justice, but we've been talking for a little bit here, uh, and I just want to, you know, do a, a quicker, a quick macro breakdown here. Uh, we open on Sinestro number ten, where we left off last issue. Sinestro is having a time of it, going up against the Apex League and Mongol at the same time, all while his energy from his ring is being drained. Um, Mongol uh, is telling you, you know, you, you know, look how you struggle, how you thrash about, uh, you know, what are you going to do? And, and he's only got like 3% uh, of juice left in his ring. He says he yields right when a little 
You can see a little bolt of energy go off of his ring. Mongol says he accepts his surrender and then shoots him with heat beams from his eyes. I didn't, I for, either didn't know or forgot Mongol had those. Uh, the Apex League takes him uh, prisoner. And one of the Apex Leaguers says, you know, just before he surrendered, he dispatched some sort of flare, a distress signal, perhaps. And then uh, he's the one that's holding uh, uh, Lysa Drac uh, uh, hostage. Distress. <laughs> Your master is right. You don't know Sinestro. Uh, so he said, you know, Mongols flying off says, you know, bring the witch and return to War World. There are pre- preparations to be made. He summoned the Yellow Lanterns. Right as we see the this uh, bolt of energy flying off into space, it splits into two. What could that mean? Uh, cutting over to New Korgar, we see uh, 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 Sora uh, talking to some of the Korgarians and you know showing them the bodies of some of the other Korgarians. Uh, one of which is um, is the uh, son of one of the survivors and. Uh, she, you know, kind of understandably uh, is upset. Uh, Ar- Sora asks Arkillo to get rid of the bodies, you know, get them out of line of sight. Uh, right then, a bolt of energy, a, a courier signal shows up, and it's Sinestro projecting. He says, Sinestro Corps, you are needed. No doubt your fellow lanterns have returned with the bodies of the Guardians we discovered. Some of you might have surmised that our old enemy, Mongol, is behind this sadistic affront. Even now, I'm infiltrating his homeworld. But the time has come for my forces to converge on my signal. Together, we will crush this hated foe once and for all. And um, one of the lanterns, I uh, forget his name because he's an asshole, says, uh, can it be, do you see? Dez, <laughs> can isn't it, it Dez? Be, do you see? <laughs> uh, he, he couches. He, he couches. Is that, is that an issue in, in, with my digital copy? Or no, that's, really... that's, what he, that's the word he uses. I don't know. Okay. He couches his summons as if it were all part of, of some grand scheme, but there is worry in his words. This is a plea for help. Um, Sinestro's in trouble, and we cut back to War World, where uh, Sinestro is strung up upside down. And Mongol explains what's been going on. Uh, he says, you know, yeah, I, he, he, first thing Sinestro asks is, where's Lysa? And Mongol quickly goes, well, I saw her charge you up. I know that she's nothing more than power to you. Uh, and uh, I've been speaking of power. When uh, the Lanterns went up against Relic, after Relic's defeat, we remnants of his science were left behind. Well, we repurposed that and reverse engineered it. And that's how I've been stealing your light. And I also know that you've got Parallax inside of you. And the second you manifest him, I'm going to take him from you. Um, so, you know, go ahead and scheme and ponder all you want, but, um, you're going to die, basically. Uh, this one, one of the Apex Leaguers, uh, I don't, uh, his name is Venomous Shade, I guess. Um, he, uh, Sinestro taunts him and, you know, he basically says, you know, <laughs> I don't. I don't stare. I don't tolerate stares from my own underlings. I certainly won't stare, stand them from Mongols. And this guy goes, "I'm a, no one's menu in Sinestro minion." And uh, Sinestro goes, "Does telling yourself season the taste of Mongols boot heel?" <laughs> uh, and then the Venomous Shade talks about how he's in a, the him and the Apex League have partnered up with Mongol because of the paling. 
the paling is working its way across the universe, evidently destroying worlds and, you know, harming people and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, Sinestro says, well, basically that working for Mongol isn't going to do anything for you. Um, <clears throat> right then the, uh, the, uh, Sinestro Corps shows up to war world and starts fighting. Um, Big, big uh, cosmic showdown going on. Sora and a couple of uh, lanterns make themselves inside uh, to go find Sinestro. Uh, the uh, uh, Venomous Shade says, you know, I, you know, a battle's broken out. They can't possibly win. Mongol knows him. He's prepared. And he says, yeah, but Mongol likes a bit of sport. He'll want to see how well his forces fare against the Sinestro Corps. His confidence is misplaced. He may think he knows his enemies, but he doesn't know everything. For example, he has no idea that I dispatched more than one summons. And that's when What's-Her-Not shows up. Becca. Uh, the, yeah, I, I forgot her name. I knew she was the chick from the New Gods thing, but I already forgot her name because they never showed her, like, actually becoming a, a, a lantern. So I never, we never knew if she, got a, a, if, if she kept the ring, if she put it on, or what had happened. Um, but Becca shows up via boom tube right into the midst of battle, uh, all yellow lanterned out, which I actually like her costume and everything, the headpiece and the swords. And so that's all pretty freaking awesome looking. Yeah. She has a lot of symbols, a lot of green lantern, a lot of Sinestro core symbols all over the place, but you can't see her wearing a ring. That's true. That is true. Um, this is this is this is a good issue. Uh, there, I did find a couple of issues within a couple of issues within this issue, um, artistically, and I just wanted to point them out before I forget. Uh, and I'm stalling because I'm trying to flip back to that page. Um, when Sinestro gives up, uh, let me see here. When he gives up, when he says, uh, you know, uh, I yield. What is he wearing? Uh, when he says I yield, he does. He's wearing his pants and his like his gaunt, his um, his wrist protecting part of his yeah. armor, but that's it. Most of his suit is burned off, right? Yeah, his, the chest, uh, the whole shirt is burned off. That okay. happened at the last end, the last issue. Right now, uh, when Venomous Shade is holding his sword against uh, Lysa's throat, it says just before he surrendered, he sent out. A yeah, he's wearing his, he's wearing his uniform again. Yep, he's wearing his full costume. I just wanted to bring that up, not not only before I forgot, but also in case my digital copy has something your paper one uh, doesn't. Uh, and then before that, the very, very first page, do Sinestro's ears look a little off to you there? We, I mean, I get that Sinestro has pointy ears, but this looks almost, you know, fantasy elf-like. Yeah, I guess I. I mean, it might be the angle that that they're, that they're drawing him from, but yes, I I could I could see that they do okay. st- they do seem to be a little. But I don't necessarily know if it's if you look at least throughout the issue, if you look at the way he's drawn, I don't necessarily know if it's that inconsistent. He's if you really look, even when he's upside down in some of those panels, his ears still are relatively elf-like. It's just a, yeah. it might be the angle and the way his hair is moving, and but I will say. I do appreciate that they uh, that these artists are keeping continuity. In other words, every time Sinestro's seen without a shirt, and you see his back, the the Green Lantern symbol from Rebirth. Yep. That uh, 
that Kyle burned into his back. Uh, so that's, that's, that's cool. That that's always pretty consistent. Um, I still, I'm going to have to double check. I can't remember what Mongol's power set is because he's shooting lasers from his eyes and flying. I mean, I know he can fly, but I can't remember if that's a, Actually, a function could, could of he fly? Could he fly? Yeah, I think it was a function of his suit. Uh, I know that we just reviewed, you know, Emerald Twilight not too long ago and Kyle's first few issues. Because he stole that but... rocket to get to where he needed to go. Yeah, he stole that. He stole that little jetpack thing to get to where he needed to go. But I, I'm pretty sure I remember Mongol flying uh, in the past. Um, whether that was a function of his actual abilities or whether that was a function of technology or his suit, I don't know. But I'm pretty sure I remember Mongol flying in a couple of his, uh, instances. I don't know specifically where I read that. If it was like a, a '90s comic or or what, but I do remember Mongol flying at some point. Not like without, uh, you know, Sans jetpack, uh, Sans obvious technology. And that, of um, course, was Mongol One, and this still has to be Mongol Two. Yeah, uh, and as far as him having heat vision, like I, I don't even freaking know what's going on there. I'm wondering if they're maybe mistaking uh, Mongol for Dark Side. Um, but again, I, my my history with Mongol is not super extensive, so I can't claim. I mean, I I know a great deal of the DC universe, like the back of my hand, but Mongol is one of my, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> Mongol is one of my weaker points. I don't know his exact, uh, origins in history. So. God, I uh, hate, Mo- God, I hate Mongol though. I hate him though. I well, really... Like, like as the concept or just, you know, he's, he's a bad enough dude that. Yeah. It's, it's that, it's that for... one. I don't, as a concept, it's, as a concept, I don't, have, I don't have a, I don't have a problem with him. I just, he's, he's, he's just so. I don't know. I, I just want our killer. He's to, such an ass. Yeah, I want our. I just want our killer to punch. I just really wish they could beat the living crap out of him. Our killer gets the last shot and knocks him out. That's what I would. Our our killer really needs to get. If there's one guy that's kind of like to, to at least give our killer a break. This this is the guy that our killer should get his break against because he really he owes. He owes our uh, Mongol. Yeah, my Mongol Mongol strike, and I understand your hatred of him. Just you know, not necessarily as a concept, but just you know, this is a bad dude. Someone needs to, you know. My dad always told me, you know, not you know, not he. It was it wasn't like you know, fight everybody that you come across in your life. But my dad always told me that you know, there is there are certain people in this world that just you know they need to be confronted and you know, you got to stand up for yourself. But then there are other people in the world who are just assholes for the sake of like, he always told me that they're, 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 they're not everywhere, but every now and then in your life, you're going to come across people who just need to have their ass kicked. You know what I mean? Like they need to be brought down a level. Yep. Uh, <laughs> and it's, and it's not like, you know, strike at them first, uh, you know, or something like that, or, you know, humble them or, you know anything like that? It's just like they're not—they're not going to learn until someone else, you know, puts them in their place. You know what I mean? They're going to think they're hot shit until the day they die, unless someone puts them in their place. Mo- Mongol is like the supervillain equivalent of someone who needs to be put in their place. <laughs> yeah, and you have—and and you have to suspect by the end of this story arc, 
he will be put in his place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this uh, the only the only downside, of course, being uh, you know in real life when someone gets put in their place, they they should they should learn the lesson and stop being such a jackass. Uh, whereas Mongol probably won't really learn the lesson. <laughs> no, no, he won't. Uh, at least. <laughs> Even, I mean, even if the only way it's going to happen is if the Apex League kind of like realizes their best bet is to, you know, and if their if their ultimate goal is to find allies to deal with the paling, that they're much better off being allied with Sinestro than Mongol. So even, but but we have we have the whole. What do you? What were your? What was your take on the whole uh, trip down Relic Road again? That's because now I got a bad. I mean, that seems to be like a crutch now. Anybody can use. No, it's not so much that. I think if you remember the uh, Villains Month one shot with Mongol, this is just, I mean, this is another, okay, the, the issue number nine, you know, we did have a face off with Mongol. You know, we did have that. But I think that between issue nine and number, uh, issue nine and issue 10, issue 10 is more of a character piece on Mongol, more focus, more time with Mongol. Um, specifically because the fight is over a couple pages in and Sinestro is just captive, so Mongol is monologuing basically the whole time. Well, because he's monologuing, this is just as th- this thing he says about Relic and what he does in terms of reverse engineering and knowing what he's doing and all of this just sounds like it could be these couple of pages where he monologues could almost easily be, be fit into that Villains Month one shot. Talking about how you know how Mongol uh, world world comes outside uh, of a of the orbit of a planet, and then I, what did he do? He like takes he destroys most of the population, and you know those who can be put into service are put into service. It's re, the whole world is repurposed for for raw materials and energy. Like it's a whole it's a process. It's a it's it's a it's a tried and true process to destroy this world and, and it all takes place in the matter of, of, of a day or so that everything is used and, and things like that. I think this is the same. This is the exact same Mongol. He's, he's, he came across uh, technology from a battle with an enemy that almost destroyed the core. And in fact did destroy a core. <laughs> uh, and it was like, well, this can be of use to me and then found whatever he could repurposed it and used it to his own ends. This is exactly that Mongol. Um, and in terms of whether or not it brings relic back or they're hinting towards something like that or, or whatever's going on, I, I don't know, but it definitely makes sense that of any, of, of the people floating around out there who are enemies of the green lantern Corps who would repurpose Relic's technology, Mongol is definitely one of them, and it fits in line with the Mongol we were introduced to in that Villains Month one shot. Oh yeah, I'm, I don't, I'm not really doubting that. It just seems like we've, this is our, at least the second time we've seen Relic's tech like uh, repurposed already, and it just seems to me that. What was the first time? I'm trying to remember when it was, but I know some didn't it happen in the Durlin War. I think somebody used it. In the, somebody I thought used it in the Durlin War. Maybe. Uh, but I'm pretty sure that it's been used at least now two different times, and I'm just afraid this is going to be a crutch whenever somebody wants to dr- be able to become a threat or level out the playing field against against the lanterns, or lantern core, or the lanterns in as a whole. Is that oh we we've you know we reverse engineered our relics tech and and so now we can you know. 
I'm part part of me is just afraid this is going to be a worse legacy than the whole finite reservoir thing because anybody can come back in any given time and say, oh, we found a remnant of res, of relics tech and we were able to figure it out. Yeah. So, which also in a way makes it sound like relic relics science and his tech wasn't as advanced as we thought. If people could reverse engineer it that quickly to figure out how it worked. Well, I mean, I don't know if it's, the concept. It's, I mean, yes, we know it's easy. Theoretically, it's easier to reverse engineer something when you have something that's already intact and try to yeah. figure out and, and take it back. I yeah, that's, the that's concept what I, that's works, what, but yeah, that's what I was going to say. I mean, it, it, inventing technology uh, with you know from scratch is harder than reverse engineering something that's already in existence. Right, but it doesn't mean you can do it like just like that. Well, is it really just like that? Because it was Relic, and then it was the Durlin War. How long did the Durlin War last? Well, we know it. We know it seemingly lasted forever. But the point, but in real, in actual real time in the comic book, it was it didn't last very long. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I just, I just don't want that to be a crutch that everybody goes to whenever they need to level out the playing field. Let's let's bring in a piece of Relic of Relic tech. Well, yeah, that that I get. I just specific to the to Mongol reverse engineering it. I mean, how many times has World World done this process and World World's inhabitants and scientists where they come across alien worlds of all varying types of technological technological advancement and come across technology and then, you know, come across all these resources and repurpose them to their own ends. How many different types of technology have they come across that they themselves weren't familiar with? And, you know, I would assume that working for Mongol is one is is something of the effect of, you know, you got to it's it's fight or flight. You know, if, if you don't perform for Mongol, he's going to kill you. So by now, his scientific team in terms of re- repurposing things is probably uh, probably equal to the task of quickly reverse engineering technology that they're <laughs> that they're not familiar with. So Mongol can can use it to his own ends. Because he'd kill them otherwise. So, depending on how long World World's been doing this, how many planets they've come across, I, I don't really have a problem with this specific instance, uh, i.e., Mongols and Mongols team versus Relics Tech and being able to reverse engineer it regardless of the time. But I do see what you're saying in terms of Relics Tech being a crutch for future things, you know. In this specific instance, doesn't really bother me. Understood. All right. You have anything else to say about this issue? I mean, you said it was the best of the bunch. I don't want to <laughs> cut you short. Short. No, I, I think, I think we hit all the the major beats. It was, I what I really liked about it was the fact that the way last issue ended, it kind of seemed like you kind of, especially because they were building up the Apex League so much that you were I, I was kind of nervous about what we, what we were going to get in this issue and even though in a way part of what may make it easier to deal with for me is because we, we really, really didn't see the Apex League do anything in this issue <laughs> they were just kind of there uh, but even though Sinestro you know obviously he lost he lost the battle didn't lose the war but he lost the battle the fact that Sinestro still seems to be as in, in control as you can be when you're powerless and, ha- and hanging from your feet, <laughs> yeah. because it's because it's Sinestro, and it's going to be interesting to see what kind of a re- relationship he and the Apex League have when this ends. Whether they're, whether they're going to be temporarily 
allies or whether they're just going to go their separate ways or again because it all depends on you know the the, the drum their drum beat for uh futures end yeah see this is all this all this futures end stuff i'm i'm kind of of the impression that this is all going to uh and this is kind of my final thoughts on the matter before we uh, go into listener feedback or whatever but um I kind of feel that that this is 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 a drumbeat. Um, they're they're amping up the futures in stuff, only to pull a, for lack of a better term, a switcheroo. You know, everything looks like it's heading towards the inevitable conclusion of what we saw in the futures in because it's it's there is no there's no there's no there's no, uh, there's no halting this destiny of futures end. Well. Doesn't doesn't uh, what is it? Uh, there's a law. I've, I've been really into uh, physics lately. I've been reading a book called Parallel Worlds by uh, Michio Keiku, if I'm saying that right, uh, which is uh, about the actual physics involved in the actual real life theory of there being a, a real life multiverse. Um, you know, the, based on, you know, physics and string theory and all this other stuff. Well, because I've been reading that, I've been hearing a lot of various terms, and I don't know the name of the actual uh, law or theoretical law, but the, the act of observing something changes what's being observed. You know what I'm talking about? Have you heard that before? Yes, which okay. which automatically makes me think of Krona all the time. <laughs> right. So so, so the, the act of observing something affects that's, that which is being observed. Uh, in the the New Guardians issue, um, the what what happens there? Uh, uh, Oblivion essentially tells Kyle what his destiny is. Now it's not necessarily uh, it, it, this is this is going a step beyond just merely observing. Someone tells you what your destiny is, and it seems like in that issue. Although Kyle says no, that that's not possible. It, it can't be true. You know, Kyle somehow must know that it is true. Um, you know, and, and Oblivion himself says something about the fact that I wouldn't be here. You know, you pointed that out. So part of Kyle believes it is true that it is a possibility that he is worried about how far he can take it, and that regardless of whether Oblivion is strictly one hundred percent right, the emphasis of what he's saying. The actual, the 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 logic behind it that that it is a place to which Kyle could eventually go, uh, if if allowed to to go too far, strikes true with Kyle. So wouldn't Kyle then go through any any lengths to avoid it? So you know the act of someone telling you what your destiny is obviously then changes your destiny. Because you know ahead of time and can then take steps to observe it. I mean, and, and that gets into a whole debate of, well, is there free will and, you know, destiny and whatever. This is comics. We're not going to go into that. Um, you know, <laughs> regardless of whether you know the future, maybe some things are just set into motion. And regardless of what actions you take, you eventually wind up there anyways. But I think this is kind of all these futures end rumblings that we're getting in all these various titles are more of. You know, they're they're somehow in one way or another being made aware of their potential for where they end up in Future's End, and they're marching towards those drum beats, but they're all going to veer a sharp left. You know the, how they how people say, you know, if I if I just you know, boiling it down, as opposed on if I just said yes instead of no, where would we be? You know, they're gonna all come to this critical juncture where 
if they stay stay the course, then Future's End happens. But they're all going to go the other way. Well, yeah, I mean, I never thought I never thought that they, that they were they. What I've always thought, and let's back it up and take this approach. I've never thought. Actually, I think I backtracked. I never thought we were going to really end up in Future's End the way, but they want us to believe we're going to end up in Future's End. That they want to they want to lay out the breadcrumbs that the stories we that the story we saw in each of their titles is where these characters are going to end up. But at the end of the day, they're not going to end up there, or they're going to end up there in a different way, and the results are going to be different. That's but they want. But what I'm still curious about, and you know, listeners, please give us feedback on this: is whether the drumbeat for Future's End is as prevalent and as basically overpowering at times in all in many other DC books or DC family books as they are in Green Lantern, because it seems like Green Lantern, other with the with the probably Green the, the the main title itself is the one that hasn't been beating you over the head with it as much. We know relic. We I mean you got you know relic. They played relic up big time in the uh, end of the. The annual, the conclusion of the new gods, because you saw Relic multiple times, and we know Relic is alive again. So that is a that is the direct tie-in, and probably the, the idea of uh, something down the road happening, even a Black Hand, even though we know Black Hand is going to be in Suicide Squad, so nothing's happening to him immediately. But the idea, but Green Lantern hasn't been beating you over the head with it as much about how the you know, Black Lanterns are coming back and it's going to be Krona and all the stuff. They really haven't been doing that. But if you look at all the other books, Red's probably another one that hasn't been doing it as much. They may be hinting that guy's going to go into a change, but pretty much in core, core New Guardians and Sinestro, they've really been laying, you know, they've been putting the breadcrumbs down a lot. I don't. And if, which is kind of odd onto itself because this story, even if it did come to pass, it's supposed to take place five years down the road in continuity. So there's a lot of stuff that has to happen. But so, but I'm just yeah. But know. but but convergence is coming up. So what what does that do? Maybe yeah. this is their last chance to tell those stories before. <clears throat> now does it make sense in the five year storyline? No, but uh, you know maybe maybe that's why. Yeah, they, we'll see. I, I I still don't know if I have a if I believe there's going to be that much of a shift after after convergence right 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 uh but we'll but we're gonna see and like yeah, going back to what you said you know philosophically related to destiny too it's the idea of of uh not just yeah being told your destiny does does that you know does that essentially change it immediately once you find out about it or the fact that you you know you're fighting it you know and it doesn't that no matter how you fight it, it's going to work out. Or you could look at it, you go back to like a Revenge of the Sith kind of look. That basically you try the the reason why your destiny ends up, or the, the way things end up coming to be, is because you actually are trying to fight it. The thing, right. You become you you it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy because you try to do you try to prevent something from happening, and by doing by tr- actively trying to prevent something that that you believe is going to happen, or someone tells you, or you have a vision is going to happen, you bring it about. Which right. is essentially what, what happened in Revenge of the Sith because of what Anakin did with Padme is because of of his desire to protect her he ends up getting into a position where he you act he accidentally puts you know begins the process of where she ends up dying. Um, so, it, yeah, de- de- we could have a whole episode on Destiny, but which we're not which we're not gonna we're not gonna go into another hour on Destiny now. But yes, yeah. But but the reality is, yeah, I don't I don't think it. I think. 
See, we're going to see. I always thought we were going to see parts of Future's End. They're going to want us to think it's all going to play out in Future's End. But especially since there's so many years down the road, even in continuity, that there's a lot of things that are going to change. I think they're just. I think in a way they just want they just want to remind us that we haven't forgotten Future's End and to see how people are paying attention to see this was foreshadowed in Future's End, like with Marrow being kidnapped, and so. And the shadow, you know, the shadow empire, which is still going to be around, and all these, all these different, which is actually interesting in a way. Now that we get some of the tie-in to maybe to uh, to uh, Abin Sur related to the shadow empire, maybe in a way it makes more sense that you know the Indigo tribe, even though they're not really were allies with them, they were kind of like maybe observing them more and having more of an active role in it. Uh, even though we know at the end, according to Future's End, you know the Indigo Tribe just is there to try to get a new leader. But maybe at some point the Indigo Tribe does kind of see the, you know, who knows? We're gonna, I'm sure we're going to see much more of the Indigo Tribe in the, between now and whatever version of Future's End if we ever see one uh, before that plays out. Because the Indigo, I think they're going to continue to build on the the antagonism now that exists between the Indigo Tribe and everybody else as if as a result of Lights Out. I mean, excuse me, of uh, God's Head. So. All right. Well, uh, let's let's take a, a, a break real quick, uh, and we'll do a couple promos and stuff like that, and we'll be right back with listener feedback. Hi. My name's Mike. Join me and my brother-in-law, Rich, as we discuss DC's comic book, The Flash, on our podcast entitled Flashback. It's located at Flashback Podcast. Dot .podbean.com That's flashbackpodcast.podbean.com Hi, this is Phil Lamar, John Stewart on Justice League Unlimited, and you're listening to the Lantern Cast. Hi folks, Sean Ingle here. And Strange Disembodied Voice here. And we're here to talk about the new direction going on over at Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. Like our in-depth coverage of the Howard Chaikin pen, Guy Gorker, collateral damage. No, because that book was utter sh**. But we are moving into the Judd Winnick run on Green Lantern, where we'll get stories about psychotic ring wielders, teenage sexual identity issues, and Kyle becoming an nearly godlike being. And yet, still not as weird as Guy Gardner's warrior face. Yeah, you may have a point there. Plus, we'll be covering the ancillary books that came out at the same time, including Circle of Fire, A Thousand and One Emerald Knights, The Black Circle Green Arrow Crossover, and so much more. Which would easily make up for not covering collateral damage. Also, if you're subscribing to the show via iTunes, be sure to go to Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys to make sure you get new episodes updated weekly. So, they kicked you off the main feed? Uh, no, they just streamlined it, so the Two True Freaks proper shows would only be on it. Are you sure it's not because Scott doesn't want a Green Lantern podcast on the network? Uh... No, in fact, he's spoken very glowingly about the show. I mean, he's even offered to come on into a guest bit. He said he really likes it, and despite his fact that he doesn't like Green Lantern all that much, he's come check out Just One of the Guys over at TwoTrueFreaks.com and subscribe in iTunes at Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys. You'll be glad you did, or double your money back. Hi, this is Ron Mars. You're listening to The Lantern Cast. And I am contractually obligated to tell you this is the best Green Lantern podcast. 
Alright guys, and we're back. Um, just uh, two emails to go through real quick. Um, Facebook and Twitter will be handled next episode. Well, next regular episode. First and foremost, though, we got an email here from Jesse, and Jesse is actually writing in about the Elseworlds show. Now, normally we would uh, address this on Elseworlds, or if it was like a GLGA um, piece of response, then we would wait till GLGA, but because of the uh, infrequentness <laughs> that uh, Jim and I will be able to put out an Elseworlds episode, we didn't want to wait too long to get to this, so I figured we'd just address this now. Jesse says, and it's a little bit of a long email, but I'll just read it out. Hey, Chad and Jim, I just finished listening to your Elseworlds episode about Last Son of Earth. I agree with you that it's one of the best Elseworlds stories. It's also one of my favorite Superman stories. I happened upon it when my LCS bought someone else, someone's whole collection. He got a lot of good prestige books in that buy. Shout out to Richard's Comics and Collectibles in Greenville, South Carolina. I would like to suggest a couple other out-of-continuity stories for future episodes. They're not technically Elseworlds, but are good stories nonetheless. The first is Smallville Lantern. When the ring of Krypton Sector detects Clark on Earth, it goes to him. We get to see the Smallville version of Jon Stewart as a police detective and as Green Lantern of Earth. Also, Aya makes a cameo in a panel with a big group of GLs. Another is an issue of Adventures of Superman from last year where Tomar's sector partner tries to save Krypton and fails. He essentially, uh, he essentially becomes a drunk with a death wish when he finds out one person survived. He seeks out Superman and asks for Superman to kill him as punishment for his failure. I'm not at home where I would look up the issue number. I'm considering starting my own podcast on my other favorite DC character, Deathstroke. I don't know if he has a big enough following for a podcast, so I'm putting out feelers to other Deathstroke fans on Twitter. Basically, I'm like Jim was when he started LanternCast. I want to talk about Deathstroke with other fans, but don't know any. I figured that I'd talk to my computer for a while, and then hopefully somebody wants to listen and interact. I may seek some advice and try to learn some other some uh, some things from veteran casters like Jim, Dan, Chad, and Mark. One last thing, I like the theme song for the regular podcast. <laughs> Jesse. <laughs> uh, I just read a whole email. You anything you want to say there? <laughs> so they did. So with that Adventures of Superman story, they said Tomar's sector partner. He wouldn't have had a sector partner then. He shouldn't um, have. It, I think it was. I read that. I think it. I think it was Tomar's sector partner. Um. This is Adventures of Superman, where Superman still has the red trunks, so I don't know. I guess it's supposed to take, take place in the pre-Flashpoint universe. Yeah, but, but they, remember, there were I – mean, yeah, but I know. It's it, probably just for storytelling. I'm just trying to nitpick because we know they didn't have two Green Lanterns per sector until after after the core was restarted in Rebirth. Right. But I, w I wouldn't be – I think – I don't know if I own any of those issues, to be honest. But theor, but moving beyond that point, I don't. I would not be against any of those ideas if it's something that, you know, we come based on our schedule and everything else. If we if we look at, it, it's like, yeah, that would be a good, you know, that, those would be good stories to do, or some of them. That would be, I wouldn't be against that. I like the idea of I like the idea of Aya making a cameo. That's cool. I miss that show. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, I I read that that too it was it was more of she was in the background she didn't say anything she was in one panel as a group shot she was there no i know i just i that was such a good show every 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 time i see that uh the teen titans go thing i just think of i go back and i think of, oh 
We we can't get we can't couldn't get a second season of Green Lantern, but we got that. Yeah. Uh. uh any uh any uh tips for him as a podcaster or hoping hoping to start a podcast? I don't know if I can offer too many pearls of wisdom. I'm still like a new kid on the block myself, but um. I guess a general suggestion might be again depending on whether it's through you know our page on Facebook or the people that he knows that he could just tr- I, he might try to tr- reach out and try to find see if there's other people that he already knows that, that may be Deathstroke fans so they may be somebody he could partner up with right off the bat instead of having to fly solo since I think I think we all kind of agree that you're you're better off at least having two people when you record ideally just so you can bounce ideas off each other and it does kind of help uh, obviously, if you've listened to us, it doesn't entirely <laughs> prevent this, but having both of us on the show, I think it limits the time Chad and I can both kind of ramble and meander and, go <laughs> and just rattle things off endlessly without the other person being able to rein them in. When you're by yourself, it's a lot harder to, do, to, to know that, oh, I think I've been rambling for this topic or off topic for 10 minutes now. Um, but, yeah, I mean... Obviously, when it comes to the technical aspects, I think on different levels, we 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 would be more than willing to help him with, with the knowledge that we have. Uh, yeah, I, I would say, outside of uh, everything Marcus said, I would say uh, I know it sounds stupid, but be true to yourself. Like, uh, don't try and do something uh, that you're not comf- entirely comfortable with just because you think it would attract more listeners. Uh, because most people can kind of tell when you're doing something you're not comfortable with, you know, when you, when you sound, uh, ill at ease. Um, I also think that, uh, it's also a good idea to get an idea of a format and what you want to do and accomplish in, in each episode and stick with it. Like for instance, one of the, one of my favorite podcasts that I listen to is the fire and water podcast. And one thing that's really cool about Fire and Water is if you go and listen to their first episode and then maybe listen to, you know, a more recent episode, format-wise, it's basically the same. They figured out what they wanted to accomplish and have basically, you know, been doing that ever since and just kind of small tweaks here and there. Now, I will say that not everybody is capable of doing that, not to, you know, detract one person or, you know, compare and contrast them. But, you know, kind of get a rough idea of what you want your format to be going forward, what you hope for your show going forward, and, uh, you know, try, try to accomplish that with the first episode. Uh, but if it gets too difficult, don't then also let that same advice keep you from launching that first episode until everything's, quote, perfect. Nobody's going to care if you make small tweaks here and there. Like, for instance, me and Mark, has started the show, one of the first things we did, uh, and it was it was subtle, but one of the things we did, and I, I don't I don't know if very many people know this or you know uh, you know uh, can can point to it, but episode 169 had the uh, regular Lantern Cast intro music. 170, when Mark and I took over, had different uh, uh, intro music. It was that stuff from the Green Lantern Heroes Quest gra- graphic audio drama. It was just a bit of audio clip that we had used for several episodes since then, and basically until we got our new theme from the Bad Mamma Jammas. Um, so it was it was an audible transition. There was something slightly different about this new cast 
Mark and I still basically we, – we basically had the same layout, right? There was a bit of an intro. We then talked about whatever we were going to do, and then we were going to – then we did our closing. Well, another thing we did was we also entered and said we we're going to do feedback almost every episode. We said we we're going to do it every episode then, but you know, obviously logistically that didn't work out. But for the most part, we've been keeping up with feedback as best we can. That is not a drastic, huge change to the podcast format that we had before. It's a subtle – quality increasing thing that we do so we audibly changed the intro so you knew you were listening to something a little bit different we added excuse me we added a segment that wasn't so far off the rails that it was outside the realm of what lantern cast should be doing and there were there were subtle changes now if you're going to have your podcast do something in the first few episodes and then suddenly go Ah, this just this this isn't working. I'm gonna start from scratch. It's a bold move and it could work, but I doubt you'll keep the people that you initially attracted because they're not going to you know obviously they kept listening from episode one because they liked what you were doing with episode one. So a drastic change doesn't help you retain the people you'd had before. So I think basically you should get a basic idea of what you want your podcast to be. What, your, what format you want it to be and what you want to accomplish, and then make subtle changes to increase increase the actual episodes and, and, and the quality and, uh, and and the stuff you want to cover, so that you know you're 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 getting better as you go along, but it's not you know uh, blow it all up and start from scratch kind of an endeavor. That's true because even because even if you blow things up or you not if it's not a true blow up but you make you make some changes if you reboot <laughs> that the problem is that it may come across as looking um, it may give the impression that you don't know what you want to do or you're uh, unsure of, of of yourself or if you do too many changes like in a short be like if you try if you tried one one pattern for like two or three episodes and then switched gears and then went back and then try to yeah you, it's I mean some tweaking obviously isn't is is important you can't be afraid to change especially if you if there's something you try that you weren't happy with but but it's good to but it is good to kind of you know kind of like you like you said kind of have an idea going in what you want to, what you want to do what you what your format in your mind you know, how to be true to the concept that you have and then just, you know, tweak it along the way. But it's definitely, yeah. I, I, I don't personally think he would have trouble finding people to listen or even finding a co-host. Cause I think, I think Deathstroke is fairly popular. And not just, not just that. I just also think that, uh, I think niche characters are really popular right now. Um, you know, something other than Superman, Batman, or, you know, main, mainstay characters, Justice League, a Justice League podcast, uh, an Avengers podcast, you know, something like that, something specific, something niche. That's something that people want. I mean, I know that I haven't uh, put an entry on it for a while, but the Ragman blog, I think is popular, uh, more popular than some of the other things I've done, not just because it's uh, of Ragman as a character, but because Ragman is so niche. You know, where else are you going to go for Ragman information? Well, clearly Chad's got the market cornered. Well, I had the market cornered when I was posting regularly, uh, and hopefully I get to resume that based on time uh, in the future. But it's it's that kind of a thing. You know, you get to be the you get to be the voice of a character when it's a super niche character. Um, another thing I'll say is um, from the from word go, 
from word go, do not underestimate the power of social media. Now, I know that we have a lot of listeners, but the the listeners don't – not every person who listens to us interacts with us. And it can be disheartening at times, and I'm not saying – this 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 is coming from from advice guys this is not me you know cutting down you listeners out there who don't interact with us but there are times when you will look at the numbers of who is downloading or listening to your podcast and then compare and contrast it with the amount of people actually interacting with you via either email or voicemail or facebook or twitter or whatever and go well, this is disheartening. You know, it's, clearly people are listening, but they don't care enough to to write in or whatever. And this is not uh, this is not like something you really should be upset about. This is people when people listen to something or watch something. Not everybody is involved as as you or I are. We because like let, let's say just just taking me and Mark. Me and Mark are probably more vocal on social media and other things when it comes to our fandom. Because take a look at us. We're doing a podcast. Clearly, we have a passion and want our, our, you know, to get our opinions out on various things. Well, that will obviously translate into other uh, avenues as well, such as social media. Not everybody who listens to you is going to want to interact with you. It has nothing to do with the quality of your show. It just has everything to do with, you know, what time people have, what they want to say. You know, if if they like your show and they agree with most of what you say, they're obviously not going to write in because they got I mean, they what are they going to do? Just repeat what you already said in the episode. So don't underestimate the power of social media in terms from the get go in terms of building a community for those who will interact with you. Now, you can spread it. You can spread it wide like we do at the Lantern Cast. We have a Twitter. We have a Facebook page. We have an email. We have a voicemail and in various ways for people to communicate it with us. Or you can say, you know, the Deathstroke podcast or whatever you're going to call it uh, has a Twitter account. If you would like to interact with us, we, you know, interact with us on Twitter at or hashtag as opposed to Twitter, Facebook, email, voicemail and give people too many choices or, or, or whatever. Um, and, and I think that's very important is establishing that community from the get go so that people know that they have a place to go to talk about it if they want. Now, the reason I say don't underestimate the power of social media is because I see a lot of people doing it these days. And I know I'm kind of going on a rant here, but, um, my job, and I won't call them out specifically by name, but my job, uh, has had uh, issues in the past or meetings in the past, you know, sales meetings and, you know, how can we increase the visibility of our dealership? You know, how can we get our name out there a little better? Now, this the name of my dealership is known far and wide, but it's always about more and more. You know, how can you how can we just reach that much more people? How can we market to just that many more people? You know, what what group are we missing that we need to connect with? Well, they were talking about asking people after they buy a vehicle to register for Yelp and do this whole thing and A, B and C. Well, I went to our Facebook page as a dealership and saw that. Of five stars, we had like a 4.7. When you ask someone to buy a car and they actually end up purchasing it from you and liking your dealership, what is easier for them? Telling them, go to Yelp, register, create an account, blah, 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 become a Yelp reviewer and leave us a review on Yelp, or everybody's got a smartphone. Everybody basically has a Facebook. Isn't it just easier to say, just find us on Facebook, like us, and leave us a quick review, even if it's only five stars? It is so much easier to get that 4.7 up to a 5 on Facebook than it is to ask people to go to Yelp and review. But that didn't make sense to them for whatever reason. 
it's it's just a matter of the I mean like when I look up things for local area things here in Austin, sure, Yelp and Google reviews are helpful. I get that. True. But you know what's more immediate is social media. A lot of people complain on social media to various companies. You know, let's say Taco Cabana screwed up your food. Do you think you're going to get a response quicker if you send their, them a company email or if you publicly complain on Facebook? Everybody's on Facebook. So everybody's going to see your complaint. And they say no, no, no press is bad press. Well, when someone's complaining about your company and how crappy your product is or, or something like that, you don't want that word to get out and people, other people to chime in on that comment and go, yeah, I had a bad experience too. Screw this company and you know, blah, blah, blah. No, they want to nip that in the bud and you know, address it right out in the open so that people who see this negative comment also see this company's immediate positive response saying, not only uh, we're sorry for this interaction you had with our company, but here's how we're going to fix it. We love you. That is way more immediate. So – Establishing a social media presence is really critical if you want to establish a community of any kind. Yes, and I think with yes, I think, absolutely I, important. I think I think a podcast needs to have a community, regardless of whether let's say let's say it's it's you know 150 people who listen to you, but 20 people who interact with you. There's it, it costs nothing to create a page on Facebook or or create a, a page for your podcast on Twitter. It costs you nothing. So therefore, regardless of whether 20 people interact with you or 10 people interact with you or 120 or 1,000 people interact with you, having a place for them can only do you good. Yes. Nicely put. And lastly, because I'm, I'm ranting here, and this, this, <laughs> this sort of detracts from my own spinoff, the Green Lantern, Green Arrow podcast. It is more beneficial for you to have a co-host than it is to not. Sure, you can get all your thoughts out there. And part of the reason I don't have a co-host for, for GLGA is because the amount of research that goes into the topics, I really don't feel like I should be putting that amount of responsibility on somebody else. But the advantage, not just of the rambling thing that Mark just said, even though I'm rambling right now, <laughs> The advantage of, the, of having a co-host not to just rein you in when you're rambling, but also and, – and the bouncing ideas off of – the advantage of having a co-host is, um, is that some people uh, – Jim, Jim doesn't – I apologize, Jim, throw, throw, throwing you under the bus. Jim hasn't listened to a majority, if not all, of the Green Lantern, Green Arrow podcast, and it has nothing to do with Jim's thoughts of me as a host – or the quality and content of the show, Jim just doesn't like listening to podcasts where it's just one person. Usually. That's usually the rule of thumb. Now, I'm sure there are certain exceptions to the rules, and he did say he'd eventually get around to the GLGA podcast. But as a rule of thumb, it's just not all – it's not, not as entertaining when someone's going slow, solo. Okay, even if you throw that aside, there's also the motivation factor. Are you more likely – to record an episode of your new show and post consistently when it's just you or when it's you and a, a co-host. If you and your co-host set up a time to, to, to record an episode of the show, you can't just say, eh, I'm not feeling it tonight. You know, let's do it later because somebody else has a schedule. 
You can't you can't just postpone recordings because you're being lazy. If you're postponing recordings because you're sick or one thing, that's 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 your co-host. You know, they'll understand certainly if you have a good good co-host like you know like me and Mark do. I had a headache and he was like, maybe we can push it back till tomorrow. I was like, no, let's get this done. We're good. I'm okay. And then he well, died. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and clearly, I'm feeling better because I'm rambling. But um, it's just it's just a matter of not not just the amount of people who will listen to two people versus one, but also your own motivation. This sounds like something that you really want to do, that you're passionate about, that you want to get out there because you have a passion and love for the character. Well, that's all and well and good, but you really think your passion and love of the character will sustain you to post episode after episode each week on a timely basis or each month or whatever your posting schedule may be. Or do you think that there might be times where you're like, well, I got to take work home and get this done and, and blah, 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 or I just don't feel like it tonight. Or, you know, someone asked me to go out and hang out or, you know, the wife wants me to do this or, you know, whatever, whatever it may be. And you keep putting it aside for some reasons that are actually make sense or important as well as reasons where you're just like, eh, not tonight. Well, if you have a co-host, you know, you're less likely to postpone because of frivolous, lazy reasons or, or whatever. Keeps you on your game. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, and we got one other email, right? Yes. Oh, but best of luck to you, Jesse. And once you get your podcast uh, up and off the ground or whatever, feel free to shoot us a promo. We'll definitely uh, promote the crap out of your show, man. Absolutely. So the our other email for the for the evening uh, from Scott. It's a good question, actually. Uh, hi guys, how do you rank Venditti's run on on great? I supposed to be green. Uh, run on Green Lantern with the other great writers on the flagship title in the past. Do you feel he's got a good grasp on Hal's character? I'm mixed. Okay. I was rambling a lot through that uh, last sure, one. Sure, throw me under the bus. <laughs> yes, you were rambling by choice, but well, still. Well, no, I'll I was, go. I was, but I was also pacing, so I'm trying to catch my breath. <laughs> I, I need oxygen. Say we should have recorded tomorrow. <laughs> uh, first of all, it's hard to, it's kind of hard to judge because it's compared to a lot of other writers, he hasn't been on the book all that long. What's it been about? Not even about two years, getting close to two years. Because mm. he started with issue what twenty one. Yeah, I was gonna say he started when we started, but we did have a big, pretty big backlog. Yeah, we had to so. catch up. I think he's twenty one. I think was the beginning of the new creative teams. So it's been two years. Yeah. Um. At least. He, well, twelve would only take us to what to what thirty three. So. It's 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 not gonna when you throw in the extra issues and futures and let's say basically two two years worth of stuff, so so on that it's kind of hard to put it in perspective. I do think his runs getting better. I think since I think Godhead going forward it got better even at the end of the Durlin run. It's really based on impact. You know if that Reservoir thing stays around for a long time, then he had a for better or for worse he's had a he had a long-lasting impact on the direction of the franchise. Do I think he's got a good grasp on Hal's character? I don't know. I'm kind of mixed on that one too. I think sometimes I think he's gotten a little bit better, and I think he he sure he's painted Hal in a better light lately. I 
didn't like in the beginning when it just seemed like Hal was always and I know there was a method to his madness in storytelling why he did it but we did get a whole bunch of whatever Hal did he he made a mistake and he always he always leaped before he looked and which is partially Hal true but it's the fact that as a leader it's just the fact that he they made it so he was impossible of making even slight adjustments to his to his to his strategy or his tactics until you know until it was almost too late. If you look at some of the other great runs, I mean, I don't know. Obviously, in all honesty, I mean, whether you like what he, everything he did or not, you know, it doesn't come close to what Jeff Johns did as far as influence or the stories being told or the popularity. So it doesn't really compare to that. If you look at the impact, again, and what it meant to the, to the franchise, I don't think – and we're not just saying this, or I'm not just saying it because we just had the interview, but you can't really compare it to Ron Mars either because of the, how important his run was, regardless of how you how you felt about how Kyle got introduced, which is – and I'll just segue to this because this is the one thing – this is my little mini, mini, mini rant because I didn't – it's not a rant at all really. But it's a comment I forgot to say during the interview episode because Ron – I asked Ron a question. He answered it, and I wanted to say something. We segued, and then I forgot it when we did the wrap-up. Just about the length of Emerald Twilight, when I asked him if, if there's anything he would really change about it, even that he would just wish he had longer time to tell the story, that it didn't have to essentially be in, by issue 50 or in a three-month gap. He had to do it, and that was something that Chad and I talked about during our episode review, our, our re- retrospective on Emerald Twilight, that that was one of the things I know I brought up, that I think that would have been – that would have been much better for them in the long run if they had been less concerned with editorial, was less concerned with making it nice and neat in issue 50 and just made it a little, made it more of a natural transition so people would not be, have gone, so many people would not have gone apeshit over what they did to Hal if it seemed a little more in character and they had done the build towards it a little bit more. That's my rant. Uh, I don't know. I think I think Gerard Jones has run. Uh, I don't know how memorable it is now, at least in Volume Three. I, th- but he had a good run on it, and I think there were things in it that were important. I, I just think I don't know. I think I think it's a mixed bag, and, I, and then, as I even mentioned when I replied to Scott, though he's just asking about the writing. I have to tie it in, and this goes back to what Ron said too, about that even how writing is important, and but art is very important too because it is primarily a visual medium as far as how you react to it so if it's a great story but the art stinks it's going to take it away you might be able to to, if it's a mediocre story but the art's great you might at the end of the day think that book think think more highly of that book than a book that you'd kind of like the story but it's painful for you to turn every page i think venditti is hurt by billy tan not it's not the end of the i mean not it and not, I don't mean to pile on Billy Tan. That's why I tried to give credit where credit was due this episode because he, there were some really nice pages of Hal in this month's issue. But I think he, he does not draw a good Hal per capita. At least seven times out of ten, his Hal is very awkward looking. And that takes. And I think that takes away from – I think if Venditti had a better artist, I think it would help too. So that's – you know, even with, with Judd, with – with Winnick, I think Judd did some impressive things. Not everything I agree with, or or his some of the stories he wanted to tell, or the way he told them. But but that might be the run. I I see so you like you were like the Ion storyline so much that that might be the run that at this moment I might compare it to of the ones in the last 
in the last 20 years. Uh, but um, most I, I, right now. But I, that's that's just if I had to rank them. I mean, maybe maybe Gerard Jones, maybe a little bit of Gerard Jones at some point too. But I don't I don't think it I don't think he with Johns and with Johns and Mars and everything. I, I think that's just on a different level right now. Uh, I I can't rank it in terms of comparing to other other series uh, because I'm more of a hindsight 2020 when it comes to Green Lantern. There are, there are certain things I wouldn't change about uh, basically every run of Green Lantern. There are uh, definitely highlights to each one. So let me let me say this: uh, when Green Lantern uh, first started with uh, with the new creative teams, I'm talking post Johns. I think. Because Johns essentially was DC, DC had no problem telling Johns to direct the story. Now, Jeff Johns obviously had more of a of a direct impact of what was happening with his, within his own title and within uh, Green Lantern Corps as those two books were tightly tied together as opposed to what was happening in New Guardians of Red Lanterns. Those were more allowed to do roughly their own thing but would have to converge and, and, and help with Johns's ideas and plans whenever whenever they came about but i think dc is is essentially doing is trying to grant the same thing to venditti but i don't know if they have this is going to sound bad the same faith in venditti as they have in johns because johns essentially is dc whereas venditti is a writer for dc i think the now we've been highly critical at times, of specifically the Green Lantern and Green Lantern Corps titles. For the most part, per capita, as Mark says, um, the Green Lantern, uh, New Guardians, the Red Lanterns, the the Sinestros are usually the, the better books. But Green Lantern and Green Lantern Corps fall short uh, more often than not. Now, is that a testament to Venditti and Van Jensen's writing and capabilities as creators? This is going to sound like I'm kissing ass, but I'm really not. Although we are hypercritical of these things at times, I'm not entirely sure that the blame can be placed solely on the creative team. I think the blame has to be placed, uh, not entirely, obviously, as you know, the creators do have something to do with it. But I think it has to be placed on DC and the DC editorial office because of the way they're approaching their universe. The Green Lantern titles are DC's cosmic titles. It isn't just Green Lantern, Green Lantern Corps, New Guardians, Red Lantern, Sinestro. It is all those together branded as an entire section of DC's universe. If you want to read, you know, like, you know, when the New 52 first started, how they had their dark lines and stuff like that. You know, that was Animal Man, that was Swamp Thing, that was Justice League Dark. Well, if you want to read DC Cosmic, here's DC Cosmic. And I think there's editorial edicts happening at DC that, however well-intentioned, are hampering the creative juices of of uh, of of the of the branded books these are this this in in our particular side of the universe the cosmic titles venditti has plans and things he wants to do but because of the overarching edicts from dc editorial or dc every other book has to fall in line and i think that is hurting more than helping things so although we are critical of these books from time to time 
and it makes it, you know, it sounds like, you know, Venditti can't ride his way out of a paper bag or, or whatever. That's not necessarily what we're saying. Well, when we're, when we're commenting on the quality of the storylines, you guys got to know it is not specifically Venditti and Billy Tan and, and the Van Jensen and all these things that we're throwing under the bus and saying, you know, that's it. Our, our thoughts, my thoughts, at least, I don't want to speak for Mark, my thoughts on the DC, on DC as a whole and what they're doing have been widely, <laughs> my rants are, are, are famous. <laughs> they're famous now. Um, but I, I just, I, I don't want you guys to think that when we, you know, when we talk about the quality of these books, when, when we talk about the negative side of things, that we're, we're pinpointing a specific person as the, the blame for it. Venditti is not to, to blame solely for the responsibility of what we think of these books. I think a big part of it is DC editorial and DC themselves. For I, sure. Yeah, I think that I think that's fair. And again, I think Venditti has got, done some good stuff. He has done some good stuff. And I, and I think as I've been saying in most every episode lately that I think overall, if you look at the last five or six issues of Green Lantern, certainly compared to the way his run began, that if you take out the relic issue, the lights out issue, it's it's gotten it's been much much better. I think the stories he's told have been better. I think he's gotten a better grasp of how the what has been happening in the book to me has been more has been more interesting. So I again I don't want to seem like I'm ba- I'm bashing him, but I mean I, I I mean the book that I've liked the least consistently since they started was Cord. I don't even want to mm-hmm. and I don't want to ba- bash uh, Jensen either because of because they've done a lot of good stuff on that book like we talked about earlier tonight. Just the fact that they owe there's especially in Core there's they do a lot of lot of references to things that have that have happened in the past and bringing in obscure characters that people might not even know about and resurrecting Sodom Yat who we hadn't seen in centuries because because Johns and that creative team just could never be bothered going back to figure, either coming up with an idea to use him or they switched gears 55 times and, go, and, and he got lost in the shuffle so I yeah, I think. Yeah, I think coming. I think the folk, the focal point of figuring out what what they want to do. Is you know, I think that's 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 important. And sometimes you don't, you know, you don't really have, you don't have that creative freedom necessarily. It's like mm-hmm. kind of like what how Ron said it really well. It's like you you know you're playing with their toys. They give yeah. you the toys to play with, and and which is one of the reasons why when I was ironically when I was when he was talking about that. Because sometimes I still go back to the whole uh, when the when the new creative teams were when they first took over when uh, when we had the whole switching of the creators on Red Lanterns and Core when Fialkov as I was trying to talk long enough so I could remember his name when Fialkov ditched you know he he dropped off the book and then, and supposedly the rumor was because they wanted him to kill John Stewart even though that's not what he, how he pitched the book, and one of the reasons I never really completely bought that, bought into that was if DC was so really wanted to kill John Stewart, then why, why wouldn't they just make sure the next writer they brought on would do what they wanted? Because I'm sure they could have gotten somebody to do it. You know, so I, I got my, my take has always been for what it's worth. I mean, and I'm not saying I'm right. My take has always been that, the, especially I remember 
there was an interview, I think, with Van Jensen, and he kind of said something along the lines of when they asked him how easy it was to get onto the book or get into the flow, he said that it was relative. I think he said, kind of, you know, paraphrasing that it was relatively easy, but it took a little bit, kind of like a finagling, to get the book to focus on John Stewart, which would kind of indicate that the book was not supposed to focus on John Stewart as originally pitched. So my instant, my for what it's worth, my vibe has always been that they were planning on killing John Stewart to begin with, and then DC wanted didn't want to kill John Stewart. They got cold feet. Yeah, that's what I think really happened. I don't think it was the other way around. I don't think because if John Stewart wasn't your main character, then why would you be so? Con- why would you make a big deal about if DC wanted you to kill him if he was not the focus of your book? Why would you? And then if again, if DC was going to have to get a new writer, you would think you would get a writer that would follow your plan. Instead, yeah. of, instead of let's just refocus, you know, let's just make so that's and I could be wrong. That's just what I've always thought. But it's the idea of you know, if editor, if DC wants you to, you know, if that's what the, the re, they really want you to to focus. And of course, you know, there's some people that still and I and I deal with this on the Green Lantern Corps web on the forum sometimes. There's a whole thread that was started about. Do you think Jeff Johns is still pulling the strings behind everything that's going on in Green Lantern? And it's like. And that's just, I think, more from the stems from some people who just hate Jeff Johns so much as opposed to logic behind it. Because there are, there are a lot of things I don't think Jeff Johns would have done that we've seen in the last two years. Yeah. And and another reason I brought up uh, uh, editorial edicts and DC's goal versus what uh, Venditti and them want to do with, with their titles is he mentions character in his question. Uh, get a handle on Hal's character. I think that because this is the DC cosmic and that be, and because maybe now I, I, I don't know. And I don't, haven't heard any rumors to the contrary. I wonder if because this is so, because this is uh, uh, DC's cosmic universe that they want that one of their edicts, let's say they only gave five commandments, but the five commandments included something like, Basically, 95% of all this needs to take place in space as opposed to Earth. If that's the case, and I kind of get the feeling that it is, if that's the case, then in terms of Venditti grasping Hal's character, I don't know. If you're taking it purely at face value, you probably wouldn't think Venditti grasps Hal's character. But if you think... If if you think like I do, that DC said let's keep it cosmic, then maybe Venditti gets how, kind of, but is forced to work with something other than what he would like to do. Um, now I think that the only thing, the only evidence that there is that directly contradicts this is at the beginning of Venditti's run where Hal was doing those like you mentioned earlier mark those half-cocked mistakes Hal used to go in half-cocked all the time and one of the main complaints if you'll remember specifically when uh, Hal and Kilowog went down to uh uh what's her name's planet uh, uh in her tribe or whatever when she got the star sapphire ring, yes and then he called in the entire core and put them all in danger and stuff no lunch I just no yeah. lunch <laughs> yeah there you go when when, when all that was going on I said at the time, I was like, Hal shouldn't do this. Hal knows better. And it drives me insane that they're doing this with him because Hal, at this point, regardless of whether the new 52 is only five years old or six years old or seven years old, some of the things that Hal's been through in the previous continuity have still happened. Hal should know better. 
he shouldn't, you know, he still should be a little reckless, but he shouldn't be this reckless. And I think that's the only thing that directly contradicts that idea that maybe Venditti doesn't or didn't at the time wholly understand Green, uh, Hal Jordan's character is because Hal should have known better. He really should have. But, you know, I think another thing is we all have to take it with a grain of salt. And I don't want to keep rambling because my battery on my phone's dying. But, but, but um, I think another thing we have to take with a grain of salt, guys, and I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't mean to come across like we're kissing ass or anything, but I think another thing we have to take with a grain of salt and with everything that we comment on in terms of either praise or criticism is we're not creators. We don't work in this industry. And basically everything we hear about this industry and what's going on behind the scenes is rumor. Now, maybe there are facts to back it up, like every now and then a leaked email or, or something like that. But by and large, most of this is rumor, speculation, and, and, and things like that. And regardless of whether or not it's all uh, speculation or even all proven fact, bottom line is we are not writers or artists. We cannot possibly know what, our, what the responsibilities of those individuals are or what their bosses are telling them or what they have to do month in and month out. Now, should that necessarily detract from the ability of telling a good story? Shouldn't the mark of a good writer, a good artist, be the ability to still tell a good story despite whatever editorial edicts are in place? You know, like Ron said earlier in that interview, you, like you said, playing with somebody else's toys. You have this sandbox, and there are certain rules. There are boundaries of the sandbox, and there are certain toys within it and certain things you can logically do with sand in this area. But you still have to stay within this box. What you do otherwise is up to you. Well, some kids can just make a pile of sand. Or some kids can get a little bit of water and some cool-shaped buckets and start making castles and all these cool things. You, you, Even though you're constrained to a space, what you do with it is up to you. You should The mark of a good creator should be to be worth, still work within the boundaries and yet still tell a, an amazing story. So we don't know what those boundaries are 100%. We don't know what they've been told or what they're forced to work within. And bottom line is we don't know what's DC. We don't know what's Venditti. Or we don't know what's DC. We don't know what's Van Jensen. Or we don't know what's DC and what's DC telling to the Green Lantern editor. Because they're, throughout DC's history, it's not just a specific book that has an editor. It's usually a section of books. You know, the, the, the Green Lantern editor right. encompasses not just Green Lantern, but Green Lantern Corps and, you know, New Guardians. It's all the same, maybe not the same specific editor, but the same chunk of editors edit this universe and they communicate with each other. So bottom line, guys, we don't know who's being told what and what people have to work with. So we, we can criticize all we want, but it's all with a grain of salt. That's true. So we don't – we. So we acknowledge that, and then on the other side of the coin, we just have to, we can only give our opinions on what we know mm -hmm. and, what, and what we have in front of us to look at. So, but for sure, for sure. All right, well, uh, we got a lot of mileage out of two two emails, so we yeah, should we did. probably wrap it up. All righty. So if you'd like to contact us, the email is lanterncast at gmail dot com. La lanterncast at gmail dot com. You can visit our website, lanterncast.com. 
Uh, check out our where we post their episodes there. We post our Ring Cyclopedia episodes. There should be more of those coming soon, and I think we'll be getting back into the movie reviews more as we're about to hit prime movie season. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook. Use hashtag GLCast to find us on both. We're also on iTunes and Stitcher, and feel free, we'd appreciate a positive review on both or either. Either or both. Last but not least, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, call us at 708-LANTERN. 708-LANTERN. And let us know what you think, people. All right, guys. Next episode is something of a surprise. And I will leave it up to Mark whether or not he wants to tease it or not. I think we'll keep it a surprise, at least. We may tease it, like, on Facebook and maybe in Twitter, like, a day or so. Or maybe a day or so before it comes out. But I don't think we'll tease it here. All right. Sounds good. Well, next episode, guys... Uh, if you don't follow us on Facebook or Twitter, shame on you, because guess what? We, we are telling you things over there that we won't tell you on air here. <laughs> <laughs> so, so so, next episode, something of a surprise, but definitely something you don't want to miss. And we'll talk to you guys later. Good night, everybody. Good night. Okay. Chris, that won't even make sense in context because technically, Ari, that issue, that episode's coming out before this one. That's true. But who knows? What, who know, Who knows what will come out after it? So maybe it'll make sense. <laughs>